to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I'm your host, Meg Durham, and I am so glad that we have found each other. And I hope that each of these conversations inspires you to take deliberate action in your life. Today, I have the joy of chatting with the warm and wise Dr. Sarah Woodhouse about the various coping mechanisms we use to navigate the everyday stresses of life. Sarah is a research psychologist and trauma expert who grew up in the UK and after spending time in Australia with her husband and three children, is now living back on home soil. Sarah's research explores how different ways of thinking, feeling and being can affect trauma symptoms and shares practical ways to stop reacting and start living. Sarah is the author of the incredible book, You're Not Broken, Break Free from Trauma and Reclaim Your Life, which we explored in depth back in episode 59. In this conversation, we discuss what are coping mechanisms, why it's so difficult to care for ourselves, healthy ways to cope with the everyday stresses of life, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sarah Woodhouse. Sarah, welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honour. So today we're going to be talking about coping mechanisms. What do you hope educators will gain from listening to this conversation? Maybe about self-permission about understanding I don't know it's that cheesy line of self-care isn't selfish it took me a really long time to get behind that the fact that actually everyone in my life in your classrooms is better off if we self-care if we learn healthy coping which is the same thing healthy coping involves us looking after ourselves and realizing we're we're worth looking after. So there's so something around permission, I suppose. Yes, and for so many of us, we're looking for that permission from an external source that you have permission to do this or you have permission to do that. When it actually doesn't come, we need to be able to give it to ourselves without anybody else giving it to us. It's the whole codependent piece, isn't it? I've got Melody Beattie popping into my head, you know, just around that journey of which you must, I don't know if you discussed, you discussed the whole codependence thing in, in your work. It must be so relevant for so many teachers because it's about caretaking, right? About trying to control other people's behavior and only getting that self-esteem kickback if people are behaving well. You know, it feels very relevant in your field. And I've got that coming to mind, just the level of resentment that can build when we don't look after ourselves. Absolutely. When I talk with educators, about what's that feeling that just bubbles inside you when you're doing everything for everybody else and they can spot it a mile off. 
it's that resentment piece that really, really builds up. And I'd love for you to explore what is codependent. It's a very weird, wildly confusing term, but it's really about us trying to control somebody else's behavior and our self-esteem kind of somehow being pegged to that. So the focus is taken off us and put on someone else and it kind of exists as a reaction really, a reaction to other people's behavior. But it is a confusing one. It came alongside us understanding chemical dependency. So that's why there's the confusion because it was first noted in sort of wives, husbands of alcoholics was this kind of, okay, well, what's going on here? We've got this, we've got the addict, we've got somebody here who's really not behaving in a healthy way, in a well way, they don't have boundaries. And then you've got the other person who becomes a caretaker, who wants to fix, who controls through people pleasing. It's almost like the addict is focused on the drink and the codependent is focused on the addict. And that becomes their addiction. That's where it started. And now we understand that we see codependent behavior in parents of really tricky teens, or we see it in spouses whose other half isn't well, or spouses of workaholics or, you know, partners of workaholics or children who grew up in homes where the parents weren't well. So there's just been this gradual broadening and understanding that actually what we first saw in that kind of alcoholic family dynamic, we're seeing everywhere, wherever there is emotional dysfunction or just flat out dysfunction, we'll find somebody in that system who is moving into caretaking, people pleasing, who is trying to control that other person to make themselves feel better. I mean, any parents listening, I'm sure you can relate to that. You have a tricky kid, you know, total fixated, like, what do I need to do? And, and for some, that's really extreme. You know, we're sending our kids to treatment. We're getting them counsellors, therapists, and still they're not happy. Still they're not okay. Still they're smoking pot. And that's the codependent piece is the like, I have to fix this. I have to make it better. And then, of course, the relief, the solution is the letting go. And that's, that's so tricky within a family system. Really, really hard to find the line of like, okay, so healthy support but not crossing that boundary into fixing and people-pleasing. Yes, and it is such a skill. How do you unscramble the egg? There is so much happening, and I can see so much of myself and my patterning in that codependency, especially in my early career teaching, feeling like I was only a good teacher when everything was settled and everyone was well and there was no problems here no situations, I'd fix them all. And realizing that that wasn't actually helpful at times. There were times where I was sacrificing myself to make sure things happened. I'd go over and above. But then also I was robbing the people that I was working with of the opportunity to see their own strength, to see their own possibility, because I was so uncomfortable with their distress. And so when they were distressed, I would overfunction on their behalf. And I slowly came to that painful realization that so often the more we do for other people, the less they do for themselves. 
and it's that vicious cycle. And then we're looking at them thinking, why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing the things? So, well, they haven't been able to do it because I've been so efficient at doing it. I've sat in classes where students will tell me, just wait long enough, she'll give me the answer. I don't have to do the work because they're going to give me the answer. Wow, that's amazing. That's powerful, isn't it? It's very clear. Very, very, very clear. It's so tied to perfectionism, I think. I remember saying that to my husband, actually. He, he was having a moment of like, oh, no, everything's not okay because the kids weren't, you know, on maths. They were all not happy and things were going on. And I was like, you're going to make yourself sick. If your measure of success as a parent is how happy and well your kids are, you might as well just give up now. Like that, it, it's not fair on them. It's not fair on me. Like it's, it's just an impossibility and it's the same in a classroom, right? That can't be the measure of success because, you know, I'm thinking of a client of mine, actually, who works in an inner city school, loads of kids that are on the spectrum from difficult homes where there are going to be lots of ACEs, all that kind of stuff going on. If she measures her success by how happy and well the classroom is and the results they're getting, it's game over. It can't be that. The measure of success, I suspect, certainly for me as a, as a parent now, and so linked to the idea of coping, the measure of success for me is when I can be in my kid's pain and stay regulated and stay connected to self. If they can be totally spinning out and angry, upset, whatever's going on for them, and I can remain calm and grounded, that to me is a worthy measure of success over and above, you know, that external stuff. Yes. And I love how you've highlighted that hoping mechanisms can really be helpful. They can literally help us to cope in really helpful ways and they can also be unhelpful, like helpful to a point, but then the long term, not so good. So how do we understand coping mechanisms in what are they? At the most basic level, they're just how we deal with life, how we cope. It's how we respond to and hold ourselves through stress, dysregulation, uncomfortable feelings, anything in that relational field. So conflict, perception of criticism. And what's tricky is as I'm listing those things, I'm thinking that's interesting because I've just listed the triggers for relational trauma. You know, so whenever I'm doing a workshop, a group, working with a client, that's what we're talking about is, okay, well, what happens when you are in conflict or when you're perceiving criticism, when you're feeling like you've made a mistake, where do you go? What do you do with that? How do you hold yourself through it? And most often there isn't a coping. There is a doubling down on self-criticism, i.e. we are not able to stay on our own side. You know, we've got these kind of deeply buried beliefs because we learn coping mechanisms from our primary care as really you know, I know, I know, I know it's not nice to blame everything on the old mum and dad, but that really is how it is. You know, we learn to cope through what's modeled to us. Some, a lot of that's nonverbal, you know, it's just how is mum right now? So it's that kind of nervous system patterning that's going on. So we're handed this rule book. And I think so many of us at some point go, hang on a minute, that, that is not working or it used to work. Okay. And it certainly isn't working for me now as a mother, as a father, as a teacher, as whatever. So, so it's, it's that kind of conscious recognition that what I was using had its place, maybe kept me safe, 
maybe got me somewhere I needed to go, especially true if we think about people pleasing, perfectionism, fixing even, you know, they're useful in the right, in the right, in, well, not necessarily in the right place, but they, they have a purpose. They served a purpose. But I think so many of us on our journey recognize actually that it's not working and we need to find something within us. And for me, actually, the, when I teach, okay, well, what's unhealthy coping and what's healthy coping? One of the definitions that I use is healthy coping is always about staying attached to self. So it's anchored in us. Whereas unhealthy coping is always looking for something outside of us, i.e. think of that codependent. They feel uncomfortable. They feel in distress. They feel overwhelmed. Their response to that is to completely focus on another person's behavior, obsess over it and try and fix it. Or the alcoholic, they'll reach for a drink. Or most humans grab their phone. You know, I'm feeling really uncomfortable, so I'm going to grab my phone. I'm just going to scroll through Instagram for 72 hours straight. Or I'm going to shop. It's, there is a kind of disconnect from self when we reach for something else. And that's, that's learned. It's completely learned. When you grow up in a, in a family system where the parents were able to stay connected to self, to soothe themselves, then we can learn that too. The vast majority of people are learning it as adults. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about what we reach for when we're feeling uncomfortable, when we're feeling distressed. And I often laugh in my presentations that we all have our different things. Some people, they're adding to cart. Some people, it's just one more episode. Someone else, it might be an extra glass of wine or just scrolling or I've just got to check my emails. These pretty predictable patterns that show up for us and we tell ourselves that we deserve it. You know, we deserve to disconnect. And what I'm hearing from you is what we really deserve is to connect to ourselves, to attune to ourselves and our own needs, not check out. That's it. And I think it's so hard because it is such a nuanced message, especially in my field, because there is definitely a place for checking out. You know, if our feelings are very, very intense, if there is just an, an intensity surrounding us, you're at work and it's intense, we come home and the kids are intense. It's okay. Like I would, I would urge people to, to just go gently. It's about kindness as much as anything. You know, if, if what you need is to flick on the TV and just peace out, just peace out for a couple of hours. That's great. It's just keeping an eye on whether it's becoming compulsive and on whether in amongst that healthy kind of, oh, screw it, I'm just going to watch TV, which is loving it, making sure that in amongst that, there's also space where you are connecting to yourself and your feelings because no good comes from not. There must be space, whether that's through journaling, whether that's through meditations or those kind of practices, whether that's through a therapy session, whether that's walking on the beach and staring at the sea, you know, whatever it is, or whether it's just that moment by moment daily checking with ourselves of like, oh gosh, I feel really sad today. Or, oh God, I'm feeling really like I've got a lot of fears of failure coming up. That's really uncomfortable. It's just making sure that there's also space for that, but expecting none of us to ever check out is too high a task and potentially also would cause us harm. I would say being present is exhausting. Being in social connection is in a very present way. So in that ventral vagal space is exhausting. 
if we are used to isolating, if we're used to checking out. So, so that go gently approach is hands down the only way I would say. And it's beautiful to really think about everything has a place if we're aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so it's beautiful to think that I can flop on the couch tonight and watch an episode of Beckham and I'll get a lot of joy from that. However, if that turned into a binge session where I can't turn it off and it's 2am, that may be a little bit different. Absolutely. And that that's okay. Maybe every couple of months, that's all right. If that, you know, if it becomes weekly or nightly, one of my favorite phrases is just quite simply, if there's no problem, there's no problem. Like don't let's create problems. There's enough. There's no problem. There is no problem. But if there is, if actually you're waking up groggy, you're moving into shame around it, it's increasing anxiety, then there's no shame. Well, for so many of us, there is, but there doesn't need to be shame around saying, oh, okay, my, my behavior is misaligned with my values and how I want to live and, and just that curiosity piece. So for me, I watch TV in the evenings. I, I absolutely love it. I've, I've always enjoyed just being told a story. I don't mind it at all. I'm quite into TV. But my red flag is if I'm watching TV and I'm looking at my phone or I'm watching TV and I'm also kind of like really picking at my nails. I'm not relaxing. I'm, I'm dysregulated. I'm moving. I'm, there's, a, there's a nervous energy in there that I need to acknowledge and go, hmm, maybe something's like what's go- essentially what's going on. You know, it's that reparenting kind of just moving towards ourselves with curiosity and love. What's going on? It's, there's obviously something up. So understanding our own red flags, our own indicators that actually there's something bubbling around inside that needs attending to. And thank you so much for sharing that because I think a part of this journey is developing this self-awareness and your self-knowledge of, oh, when I'm feeling really dysregulated, these are the things that I go to. If it's picking nails or scrolling more, going for more sweets, whatever it may be, and getting quite clear on our own profile and how it presents because we're all so different. And also our young people are so different. How does it present in our young people? Some young people will withdraw and just read and read and read and read for hours. Others will want to pick a fight and just really getting curious about all the humans in our lives and how do we cope? How do we manage when life feels big and scary? Yeah, absolutely. I think that curiosity is everything really, because it, I think it's really interesting to kind of play with the idea of, okay, well, if I'm not curious, what am I? Because it's, it's a kind of, it can be a bit of a meaningless word. Oh, yeah, I'll be curious today. I don't know. I mean, in practice, what does that, you know, what is that? And thinking about, okay, well, what's the opposite? If I'm not curious, what am I? I'm closed-minded. I'm judgmental. I'm in black and white thinking. I'm in always and never. I've decided the outcome, which is bizarre because how on earth can I know? Everything gets smaller and smaller and smaller. I'm kind of moving into patterns of control. Whereas the moment that I kind of open up into curiosity, everything loosens. Sometimes I'll even just play with like, if I'm, if I'm really having a bad day, I'm like, oh God, everything's crap and everything's, oh God, and the kids aren't okay. And I'm, I call myself doing it more and more, just this kind of laugh of, or well, maybe everything's okay. 
just not saying to myself, everything's fine. And if you can't find that adult certainty of like, you're lovable, everything's fine, you know, that's okay. But could you just open up to the possibility that that thing that you're really worrying about actually won't transpire or, you know, that actually that kid that you're just losing your mind about because you're worried, maybe they're okay. Like maybe it's just a phase. Stepping out of our own narratives, I suppose, stepping out of the stories we're telling ourselves. For me, that's what curiosity does. Just moving into that maybe. It allows me to see how very certain I was that everything was terrible and negative and people were in danger and I messed up terribly. And you know, all those trauma patterns were kind of coming out and coming out. And that little light touch of, well, maybe... Maybe everything's all right. What this is bringing up for me as you're talking, Sarah, is that how many of these mechanisms are really survival strategies. They're in play to really help us survive. And when we're in this survival mode, feel so tight and constricted and we've just got to get through. In comparison, when we're in thriving, we just feel softer, more buoyant, like, yeah, Things happen, we'll manage it somehow. I don't know how I'm going to get through today, but we'll get there. And it's just a different feeling in our body, that real contracted and tense and almost frantic versus that gentle softness of it is what it is. I can't change the world. Absolutely. It is. It's energetic, I think. You know, and, and I think that's what's so amazing about so much of the research that's being done, so much of the information that's coming out because it's all overlaying onto that precise idea. You've just described the nervous system states there that, yeah, when we're in social connection, when we're in that ventral vagal space, one of the key things we are when we are regulated. So we're present, regulated, calm, we're within our window of tolerance. The first thing that we know is that people are curious. Isn't that fascinating? That's what it brings. It moves us into this space of like, ah, Okay, that's interesting. Fascinating. I mean, just even intellectually, as I think about watching people argue, even watching people have these such solid beliefs, kind of just makes you think maybe they're in survival. Like, what's that about? Because they're certainly not in curiosity. So, what's going on here? They're in fight, right? That's what's happening. And so, you've just so beautifully described the nervous system states there. You know, we're open, we're expansive, we're curious, we're compassionate when we are in that ventral vagal space, when we're in our window of tolerance and we're in that kind of social engagement part of the nervous system. If we're not in that, we're either in fight, flight, and, and, and it's that clear. And it really makes sense because I think about that evolutionary piece. If I was running from a tiger, so I was literally in survival, I'm not going to stop and check out the flowers and be curious about the weather or curious about what colour is the tiger. I don't have time for that because I am running for my dear life. And then what comes to my mind is the next level. So we've got this nervous system that's working in certain ways, but then we create the meaning that our identity is attached to this nervous system where I am only a good teacher or a good carer when I am a bit frantic, when I'm at my edge, when I'm doing all the doing. And so it can be hard for us to start to settle back because that can feel like, oh, this is not safe. Good educators are in the go. They're in the rush. It feels 
actually uncomfortable to go to that settled space. A hundred percent. It makes me feel so sad though to hear you describe that because I'm, I'm fascinated with the, the space that you work in and operate in, but it's also applicable to offices and workplaces across the board. It's the culture that we live in, you know, that sense of, of guilt that we get if we aren't doing. I can feel it even around the home. I've had some really interesting conversations around the, the role of gender with that. You know, busy women in the home, how difficult so many women. And, and I think there's a move towards that changing. But I even feel it in myself. You know, if I feel like, well, it's just not, it's okay for me to sit down. All the kids around, if we had guests or I wouldn't go, oh, I'm just going to go and go flick the TV on. I'm just going oh, to go and snuggle down on the sofa and read a book. It's interesting. I think it's fascinating. And for people that that's, coping mechanism of life is go, go, go. There's always more to do. I often think for these people, me included, the list is our love language. Like if everyone just did everything on the list, you would show me that you love me and that you're on top of it. And so it can be such a challenge for us to see people who are comfortable with rest because it makes us so deeply uncomfortable. So then there's a part of us that wants to get them moving because it's much more comfortable if everyone's in action because then I don't have to deal with the fact that you're resting and I can't tolerate resting, so let's just get moving. It's totally true. And I can see my brain's kind of taking me in lots of different directions with that because my mum is just an absolute compulsive doer. She's just the most phenomenally capable and productive woman. So she comes into my home even if she comes for Sunday lunch, we've invited her for lunch. And, you know, the moment she's finished her food, she jumps up from the table and she starts clearing and, and does all the things. She does absolutely everything. And, she, you know, somehow miraculously is entertaining the children at the same time. And I don't want to do that, but feel guilty. So stand up too and start doing. So then you can see that there's that pattern. I mean, I've learned it all, you know, from her anyway, during childhood. And then thinking of, Vice, you know, the, the opposite of my kids watching me do that. And then suddenly we've got this, this kind of thing, this compulsive doing, this, this pleasing, this need to move and do, guilt around resting, being passed down. And this is what our young people are marinating in, in homes and in classrooms, because our culture, there feels like such urgency all the time and as we struggle to give ourselves the permission to rest to cope in healthy ways that connect to ourselves this is what we're showing our young people and that really distresses me and makes me want to reach for my list but I won't and it also gives me hope that by having these conversations we can start to make these invisible patterns in our life visible and then we can start the work day by day of just noticing, am I going to that really frantic place where I want to control everybody else, where I'm obsessive about what everybody else is doing and they need to change for me to be settled and each day what are some small things that I can do to just practice being okay when things aren't okay. Yeah. 
giving yourself permission to rest. And I would say noticing the resistance to doing it. There is so much resistance. You know, these patterns are just hardwired into us. It's the pull to remain in these behaviors, in the fixing, in the doing, in the perfectionism is overwhelming. And, and actually sometimes is too hard not to do. I've noticed that in myself. Sometimes it's just too hard not to stand up from the dinner table and go and help my mom, even though there's that same part of me going, what are you doing? This isn't recovery. What are you doing? Sit back down. Still, I'll stand up and get, so there are certain times when it is too hard, but at the very least noticing that resistance and where we can holding ourselves through it. So noticing that. And with my kids, I will just describe internally what's happening for me. And I'm finding that to be a very, very authentic place. And it's creating a lot of kind of connection within our family where I'll say, oh gosh, I'm, my, my body's just feeling really, really anxious today. I feel like I, I need to rest, but I've oh, got kind of resistance to that. Or I'm feeling a bit guilty about it. That's a bit weird, isn't it? And it will kind of narrate it in a way that gives a name to what I know they're feeling anyway. They know mummy's anxious. They know mummy's maybe moved into shame because she's sitting down. They feel it all. It's all unspoken with our kids. And I think naming in an age appropriate way, in a safe way, naming what's going on for us is incredible because actually, and, and I think it's, it is useful for people to understand. So I work all of my clients that I work with all of the people in the program they come from, you know, they have relational trauma. And what that means is they come from a home where there was some kind of emotional dysfunction or dysfunction. So that's what they grew up in. And through so many clients and of course, just my own research and work and training, realizing that a key piece of that is children sensing something, but being told the opposite or sensing something and not having a word for it. So this kind of, all this undercut, well, it, mom says she loves dad, but it really, really looks like she hates him. Or <laughs> dad says he's fine, but um, he feels really angry. It's, it's that mismatch. It's like what we see and feel is not, that is the nub of relational trauma. That's a center point for what we see kind of them bl- blossom into this kind of tree of trauma patterns and perfectionism and people pleasing. So for me, the idea of authentic, age-appropriate, telling it like it is, is incredible. And I don't know whether you feel like some of that could be appropriate in the classroom or not, or to what extent a teacher could take that principle and move it into the classroom in terms of, yeah, like appropriate naming and kind of shining a light or explaining. I think it's an invaluable teaching opportunity. As we walk into a class, if we're feeling really flustered and overwhelmed, to say, I'm feeling really flustered, I'm just going to take a five-minute break and we can do that together because I'm guessing a few of you might feel a bit flustered. I think the more we can narrate and share our inner dialogue, the more other people feel seen and heard. I know when I present in schools to staff, I share my inner dialogue. I share what's happening and the feedback I get 
time and time again is, how did you know? Are you in my office? I feel like you've been stalking me. I feel like that was a one-on-one chat just with me. And then I giggle and remind them that we are all human. We all have these thoughts. We have these stories. And we think, I'm the only one. You know, when it comes to excuses, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough energy. I can't be bothered. My ongoing pattern is I can't be bothered. I couldn't be bothered recording the podcast. I couldn't be bothered getting organized. I definitely could be bothered washing and blow drying my hair. That's like a next level energy. And when people hear that, they're like, Meg, you can't be bothered? I thought you were just like naturally disciplined and it was easy for you to do things. Like, no, 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 no. My automatic thought is I can't be bothered. I'd rather do something else. And learning that skill of, I know you can't be bothered, but it will be worth the effort. And then also knowing times when I actually don't want to put that effort in and that's okay. A concrete example I'm thinking about is for a long time, I didn't realize that alcohol just didn't really suit me. I gave it a really good go and I'd wonder why I was tired and cranky. And once I started to join the dots, I realized that when I did have that glass of wine because I had a stressful day or something was happening, even if it was a celebration, I noticed that I would wake up at two o'clock. I'd be a little bit dehydrated, looking for some water and just disrupted in my sleep from about two to when I woke up. And then I'd wake up feeling tired, wanting something to eat. And then I'm like, oh, this is actually a really clear pattern. If I drink, this is going to be the outcome. So if this is my coping, this is my outcome. And so there are times now where I could have a drink, but I think, oh, I can't afford to be tired tomorrow morning. But there are other times where I may choose to drink because I'm happy to be tired the next morning. And I think that's sort of that nuance of everything has its own time and place, but we have to be aware that there are consequences for our actions. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's all about consciousness, really, being aware. That's the adult piece. The main piece of kind of advice that I give is to stay in agency. It's all about being conscious. So what we don't want to do is move into autopilot. So you noticed a pattern, you became aware of it, you brought it to conscious awareness. You know, you moved it out of the subconscious and into conscious awareness. And then you were able to stand in your own agency and make a choice, a conscious choice about whether to do it or not do it. And that's everything I think, you know, is always coming back to finding the place of agency with any decision, whether it's around self-care or a choice in life, it is, is so important. And that links to being conscious, being aware. So not just in autopilot, doing the same thing, doing the same thing, doing the same thing, just that pause, becoming aware of what's going on. And that always enables us to stand in our agency and make a choice, which is what adulting is. Adult, that is adulting. If anyone doesn't know, that's what adulting is. It's we move out of this kind of just impulsive, compulsive kind of, you know, melee of stuff into conscious choice. You know, is that aligned with my values? Is it not? Do I want to do that? Do I not? So I totally agree all about agency and yeah, becoming aware. And aware of our coping mechanisms. 
and how they can actually support us to be that adult that we want to be. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly it. I think that's a key, a key part of it is understanding that learning new ways of coping, healthy ways of coping, allowing yourself to kind of curiously experiment with them, finding out what works for you and what doesn't and what's aligned with those values is, yeah, ultimately it's all about, okay, well, who am I? Yeah, I totally agree. Sarah, you have given us so much to think about and to wrap up this beautiful conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yes. Go for it. I am inspired by? I am inspired by people who are completely authentic and tell the truth. When life feels hard? When life feels hard. Be kind to yourself and maybe do a yoga nidra. An underrated skill is? Listening. It's the one that comes to mind. Don't know why. That's what popped out. And I'm looking forward to? Halloween. Sarah, it is always a joy to connect with you. We have covered so much ground in this conversation and I know that it's going to really help our educators take the next step to notice their patterns, to do things differently and really build that sense of hope for the future and what's possible for them. So thank you for your work and thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Oh, you're so welcome, Meg. Really, it's just always such a pleasure. It's so inspiring, the work that you do. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Sarah and I learned so much from this conversation. To learn more about Sarah and the wonderful work she's doing in the world, visit the show notes for more details. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 107. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.